Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us with it. Pray that as we read from your holy words, that they would affect us who are so often unholy, that you would impart to us your wisdom, but also your mercy and your grace as we read the word, that you would change us from the inside out. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So as I prepared for this message this week, it has a lot to do with fear. And we sang a lot about that this morning. And it reminded me, just this time of year, we have a lot of storms. When I was a kid, particularly younger, even in, even as a younger adult, I was really afraid of the storms. And really afraid of like tornadoes in specific, specifically. I grew up in the Boot Hill of Missouri. If you've ever been to the Boot Hill, you can see miles in any direction. There are no hills. It is completely flat. And so I always envisioned this massive tornado kind of rolling across the fields toward our house. And I fed my fears because I read about them anytime I could. I watched the documentaries and saw all the things. And so even in early on in my adult life, I had this irrational kind of fear. That isn't to say that tornadoes aren't scary. Of course they're scary. They, can, they are. They can do a lot of damage. They can hurt people. But there's really a very slim chance that we're going to be hit by one or one of us is going to be directly hit by one. There's no such thing as chance, of course. We understand that because tornadoes answer to their creator. So they always go exactly where they're supposed to go. In our text today, we don't see any tornadoes. But we do read about a conqueror that is sweeping through the world and the possible fear that could accompany that. We also see the Lord calling that conqueror along with all the other nations of the world to come into his courtroom, so to speak. And he is going to pass judgment on them. He has some words for them. So we have this kind of courtroom scene. And we have also, contrasting with that, words of comfort and relief for his own people, dismissing their fears and giving them hope. This is an important theme throughout Scripture, the idea of fear versus assurance, and how the child of God should not fear, but rather trust in the Lord. We all know that we shouldn't fear, but when it comes to these big things that we can't control, whether it be something physical in the world like a tornado or a conqueror, or something that we can't quite put our hands on, we just know that we're concerned about it or worried about it or whatever, we tend to respond in fear. And we have this fear because we remain convinced that we alone can fix the issue that's going on in our life. Whatever it is, we don't trust in the Lord, we trust in ourselves. So as we get into this text, not only are we going to see the futility of our enemies before us and before their creator, but we're going to see the strength and assurance that God offers us. As the church worldwide, again, as we celebrate the resurrection today, This is a call to us to remember the truth of the resurrection every day. It's the resurrection of Christ that brings hope, and it brings hope to bear on the lives of the people that hear it. It brings hope to bear on our own lives as we hear and understand it. So with that, let's look at the text together. We're going to break it up into two parts, the futility of the nations and then the mercy of our God. 
So look with me at Isaiah chapter 41. We'll be looking at it in its entirety today. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Isaiah 41, starting at verse 1. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely. By paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid, and the earth, the ends of the earth tremble. They have been, they have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman, craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, O Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from the farthest corners, corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and have not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You you shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them, and you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers to the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know and may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us things to come. Tell us what is there hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do harm or do good, that we may be dismayed or terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. And his rising of the sun, he shall come upon my name. He shall trample the rulers as on mortal mortar, 
as the potter treads clay, who declared it from the beginning that we might know and beforehand that we might say he is right. There is none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are. I give them to Jerusalem, a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor. Whom, when I ask, gives me an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are an empty wind. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So real quick, just for some context, as we get into this chapter... We looked at Isaiah 40 last week. We saw this theme of God's greatness. We see that again today in 41. But back in chapter 40, there was this quick comparison between God and the nations of the world. So look back in chapter 40 at verses 15 through 17. I'm just going to read this as a bit of a kind of a foundation of where we're going as God brings the nations before him. Chapter 40, verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. The nations of the world are like dust on the scales. They are nothing before him. And if you couple that with what we just read about the nations they are also nothing without him either in verse 4 he says who has performed and done this calling the generations from the beginning in other words all the comings and goings of the nations are carefully planned out and carried out by the lord one of the ideas that may be referred to as we continue to go on is this idea that we see here, that the Lord is in control of all things. And, and one of the ideas that we're also going to have going forward is this idea of a conqueror that he is bringing forth, that he is coming out, that is coming out. And here in verse, or here in chapter 41, we have this conqueror, but this conqueror is not named. Many commentators believe this is referring to Cyrus, who was a great Persian ruler from the 6th century. In later chapters, 44, 45, he's actually going to be named by name. And so here, I'm not so sure that this is what Isaiah is getting at. This is a hundred years before Cyrus was even born. He does prophesy Cyrus later, but right here, I think it could be just about any conqueror, really, and it honestly doesn't matter, because if you think about it, Israel has seen several conquerors up to this point. They've had to deal with Assyria, they're going to have to deal with Babylon, and they're going to have to deal with many others after that. The paradigm, no matter who we're talking about, is helpful here, that there is one who calls forth those conquerors, and there is one at the end of the day that will deal with them. And so that brings me to the first point the futility of the nations. Look with me at verse 1 again. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. And so what's going on here is the Lord is calling all the nations of the world into his courtroom. You don't see the words courtroom there, but you get the idea. He's calling them forward so that they can give their just they can give their attention because the Lord is about to pass a judgment on them. 
And when we say judgment here, we're not necessarily talking about punishment, though this is judgment does lead to that for some. It's more of a decision that the Lord has made concerning the nations. This courtroom picture is set for us to make sure that we understand God's right place as judge of the nations, even those that are from the furthest reaches of the, the world. This word coastlands that he, that he talks about there, this, it, it gives us the idea that there's these remote places that even those people are going to be called in and there's no way to be outside the, the bounds of God's territorial authority. As God reaches and extends, his, his reach extends way beyond just a simple ownership of the land, of course, but it, it extends to the ownership of all time and creatures and all their actions. This idea has historically been known as the providence of God, a word that is kind of regaining some of its former glory, but is still one that is largely misunderstood by the church. And so here, I think, in this passage, we see a great picture of the providence of God. He talks about this great conqueror that is sweeping through in verses 2 and 3. And then what does he say concerning him? Who has performed this? I did that, is what the Lord says. This is a constant refrain in the scriptures. We're going to be going, as we go into this second half of the book, especially we're going to see that. It's something that we've gotten away from the church, unfortunately, today, because mostly we've gotten away from the Bible, which is what would cause us to do that. But notice his response to the nations, verses 5 through 7. Or notice the response of the nations as they come and they are before the Lord. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have, they have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. And then the craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And you have this, they're looking at this thing that they've made. And they look at it and they say, it is good. So in their fear, they call upon their idols or they make idols. They call to this goldsmith, and he looks at this thing that he has made, and he's even put nails in it to make sure that it will not move, and he says, it is good. And so not only does the Lord want the nations to come and hear his judgment, but he also wants the gods of those nations to come as well. We see this in the second half or the third, latter third of this chapter. Look with me at verses 21 through 23. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them. Verse 23, tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do harm or do good, that we may be dismayed and terrified. So the Lord calls these idols to like, you know, to prophesy or to do something, to do harm or to do good so that we can be afraid. He's, he's mocking them. He doesn't just sit there and stare at them. He, he mocks them. He tells them, go ahead. If you're powerful, prophesy for us. Tell us the future. Do something. Do harm or do, do good so that we can be afraid of you. And of course, they can't do anything because they're just pieces of metal or pieces of wood. That's why he finishes there at the end, verse 29. Behold, you are all a delusion. Your works are nothing. Their metal images are an empty wind. 
And to those who believe in them, he calls them, anyone who chooses you, the idol, anyone who chooses the idol is an abomination. Consider this in Isaiah's time. As they viewed the conquering Assyrians, they saw this. They were almost conquered themselves. It was a horrible, horrible time. In 150 years, the Babylonians are going to come and they are going to take over Jerusalem. And they're going to send much of Jerusalem into exile. And then later they're going to watch the Persians do the same thing, take over the whole countryside. And then later it's going to be Alexander and the Greeks. And then Rome. Who stirs the nations up? Who grinds them down to nothing? The author of Job writes, Who calls the lightning bolts as they come to him and say, Here we are. Who numbers the stars and knows them by name? This is the one that says, I'm on your side, but yet it's us that are afraid of a storm or a virus or an election or whatever circumstance we want to name. When you read throughout the entirety of Scripture, you read this idea of the fear of man versus the fear of God. And this passage directs us accordingly to what the fear of God might look like. It isn't the the nations, it isn't the circumstances that we should fear. We should fear the one who planned them out from the foundations of the earth. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is getting ready to send out his disciples to do ministry in Galilee. And they're afraid. And they have some reason to fear. Jesus even says to them, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Jesus even knows that he's getting ready to send them out into some dangerous places. Why would a good God send his own sheep out to be among the wolves? Because he's the God of the wolves too. Later he says to them, Do not fear those who kill the body. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. The constant refrain is fear God, not man, fear God, not the world. Yet when we see the big bad world, we are afraid. When we think of everything that might happen to us, we can't imagine that God might be in control of it all. So we attempt to gain control. We do that by simply just being stressed and worried. We lash out at the people we love sometimes. We worship the creature rather than the creator. We exchange the truth about God for a lie. And so then what's the answer for us? Even in Christ we struggle with this. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is always the same. We find the answer in the mercy of God found in Jesus Christ our Lord. And that brings me to the second point, the mercy of God. Look with me back at verses 8 and 9. So you have this picture He calls the nations before them. He tells them they're nothing. He calls the gods of the nations before him at the latter third of the book, and he calls them nothing. But in the middle, he talks to his own people, Israel, and this is what he says, verses 8 and 9. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its furthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. So understand the language here. 
which is consistent throughout the Old and New Testament, the language that insists that God has a people for himself, that he chose them from all the nations of the world. He made them his own. And it wasn't as if he lined them all up and he, and he, and he sized them all up and said, you know what, that's the one. That's the one that's going to serve me the best. No, he chose his people from among idol worshipers. He took us from the ends of the earth, again, showing the scope of God's covenant people. He says to us, you are my servant. I've chosen you and I've not cast you off. Now, he could have. He could have cast us off. Maybe he should have. It's not as if God, again, considered all the nations back in Genesis chapter 12. Considered all the nations. Remember, the nations just got through building a big tower and God had to scatter them. He considered all the nations, but then he went to Abraham. It's not as if he looked at Abraham and said, you know what, that one really loves me. Let's make a nation out of him. No, Abram was in Ur of the Chaldees worshiping other things made out of wood and gold and whatever else before Israel was even a whisper. And the Lord went to him and says, I will be your God. You will be my people. And nothing has changed since then. He still calls the people for himself from out among the idol worshipers of this world. And for that, we are all thankful. So the idea that we can stand with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David, and all those that have gone before, just as Israel did then, and say that we are the people of God, isn't because we have finally made it. It's because God is merciful. And notice his instructions to those whom he has shown mercy. Fear not, verse 10, I am with you. We sang these words today, did we not? Fear not, I am with thee. O be not dismayed, for I am thy God, and, and I will still give you aid. I'll strengthen thee and help thee and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. So this God who calls the nations dust on the scales, who governs all his creatures and all their actions, says to us, I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Well, how does he plan to do that? He tells us in verses 11 through 13. Behold, you all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing. For I am the Lord your God. Uphold your right hand. It is I who say, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm of Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. The one who sits at the righteous right hand of God, even now, Jesus Christ. The one who became sin that I might become the righteousness of God. He is the one who helps me. He is the one who causes me to stand. And so as we consider the death and resurrection of Christ this morning, because this is an event that is on our hearts, this is an event that is on the hearts and minds of most people in the world today, even if they're not a believer, even if they're not in church, it's something that the world celebrates today. This event is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we read this, those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. 
the reader of this is probably thinking Assyria or Babylon or some other conqueror that is to come. But ultimately what is being pointed to here, it goes all the way back to when God said to Adam, you are the dust and to dust you shall return. What hope did Adam have when God said that to him? That one would come and crush the head of the serpent. And that death that was owed him, that enemy that he could not defeat on his own, would be defeated. To dust you shall return wouldn't be the final word on the people of God, but only the beginning. That through the resurrection of Christ, we too could share in that hope of a resurrection, of eternal life. So when in this life we are assaulted by every kind of worry and concern, by real enemies, by ones that are imagined, we can sing confidently the words that the Father is saying to us, the words that we sang this morning. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That so, that soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. If you've never called upon Jesus, and rather, being, than, rather than being able to sing those words that us in Christ are able to sing those words today, that he's never going to forsake us, if you've never called upon Jesus, you'll be like the nations that are considered as nothing. The punishment for that is eternal. It's not a, oh, I wish I'd have got that one right. You'll have all eternity to think about it. Rather than fear the circumstances of this world, fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Call out to Jesus today and be saved. There's no other help in the world. Hope in the Lord. Find redemption for your soul. What about for the Christian then? Well, we have this hope in Christ, but we're not done. Just like the disciples weren't done at the resurrection. When Jesus was risen from the dead, when they went to the tomb and they were excited to know that he wasn't there, that he was risen, just like he said he was going to be. This was just the beginning for them. Look with me at verses 15 and 16. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them and shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them and the wind shall carry them away and the tempest shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. You shall glory. So what is this thing, this threshing sledge that he's going to make the people of? It's a picture that's a, it's an old farming utensil. It's basically like a sled that you would drag around over the top of the grain. And it had all these little rocks and things in it. And it would basically crush the grain. And it would separate the grain from the chaff. The actual wheat that was desirous from the stuff that wasn't. Which we see this picture in scripture all the time. We see it other places where he talks about separating the sheep from the goats. He said he's going to make us that. We're going to be that threshing sledge. So not only is this a picture of how the Lord is going to take something that's weak, incredibly weak, unable to do anything on its own and make it strong and useful, but more importantly, how the Lord is going to use the people of God to bring his truth to the nations 
that would divide them. The ones who believe in him and the ones who don't. So then how do we do that? We preach the word of God. It's the word of God that separates the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats. After Jesus' resurrection, what did he do? He gathered his disciples to himself, and as they gathered together, there were some that even doubted. You can read that in Matthew 28. As he, as he gathered them together and they saw him, some of them worshipped, some of them doubted, some of them probably did both. And so what did he say in order to calm them? All authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me, the Holy One of Israel. Go, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. And just like when he sent his disciples out into Galilee, he says to us, Behold, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. He will never forsake us. He holds us up by his righteous right hand. He is indeed our righteousness. So let us go boldly to the throne of the Father, but also let us go boldly to the nations with the message of hope and redemption. So in conclusion, as we gather together on this resurrection holiday, there needs to be a solitary message on our hearts, on our lips, that Jesus Christ is the Redeemer of his people. So you, the people of God, take heart. He is the one who will keep you and will cause you to stand, but also go out into the world with this message of hope. Let's go to him in prayer. Oh Lord Jesus, as we read these words, we pray that you would make them true for us. It's, it's not the words that need fixing, it's our own hearts. So help us, Lord. Change us. Help us to know, to believe the things that are true. Help us to call upon you for comfort, for salvation. And help us to take this message to a lost world who doesn't know you. To you be the glory. In your name we pray. Amen.